When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Paranoid Styles. What you hear tonight does not necessarily reflect my views, our beliefs, our religion, nor those of WWCR. Welcome back to Paranoid Styles. Yeah. Uh, we haven't done one of these in a minute. This is kind of like our maybe a little more than a monthly uh, podcast within a podcast that we're doing about the history of conspiracy theories and the conspiracy world. We've gotten some good feedback when, we, when we've when we asked for yeah. it, but admittedly we haven't probably promoted these as much as we should. These are these are a little more just like shorter and I, and I hope fun and informative at the same time and uh, you guys kind of get to know us a little bit and kind of where we come from. But really, uh, I envision this series as kind of like an ongoing thing for a little while and for it to be, like I said, a history of conspiracy theory and just where certain things come from and tonight what we're going to talk about is conspiracies i guess in the ancient and medieval worlds and last time we talked about the concept of atlantis and we talked about forgotten and lost civilizations kind of like a prehistory yeah and how that uh contributes to some of the kind of conspiratorial ideas that you guys hear out there on the internet or anywhere else for that matter. Mm -hmm. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about real conspiracies that happened that are in the historical record going way, way back. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to talk about something that is kind of the arch meta conspiracy theory narrative. And how that gets started. So those are the kind of like the two ways that this is divided up. You know, looking over this material that you've been organizing for this, um, you know, it goes without saying that like everything else in, in Western culture, and we kind of established at the beginning that there's really no way of avoiding being really, you know, basically Eurocentric and centered on Western culture. Cause this is really the framework of yeah. the conspiracy theory that we do. You know, a lot of right. other cultures probably do have their own versions of conspiracy theory. Uh, but this is all, you know, what, what we're familiar with and where these various traditions and subcultures that we've had experience with comes from. And like everything else in the Western world, you know, it, uh, these ideas of conspiracy and conspiracy theory have a lot to do with our Greco-Roman heritage. Yeah, thank you for addressing that, because that's something as I was going through this yesterday and today, uh, we're recru- recording this on June 21st, so happy solstice to everyone. Happy delayed solstice, because you'll hear this in two weeks. But um, that's something that I realized, like, this is really based on um, Western cult- culture, yeah. And primarily tonight, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the Greco-Roman stuff here in like kind of the first half of the show. Uh, 
I'm certain that there are plenty of conspiracies. In fact, I know there are plenty of conspiracies that we could cover in the Eastern world. And those are type of things that maybe we could do a whole show on at some point instead of just kind of jam packing it into this show. So I'd be interested if anybody out there maybe has a source for some of those, but you know, I can find those as well. So well, I'm sure you can find we could some do those anti-Semitic crossover in some Eastern cultures. Yeah. Also. Uh, that's, that's something that we can, uh, we're definitely, yeah, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism tonight, yeah. uh, or at least the beginning of it, uh, which is something we talked about with, uh, Richard Spence, I think about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, that was a great show. I'd definitely, uh, tell anyone who hasn't heard it to go back and revisit that. Right. But I would, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about that ourselves. So I guess what we're going to start off with, and I think that we probably should have started off with this in part one, Mm -hmm. but uh, I think that it is appropriate to talk about it in part three because we are dealing with the Romans and exactly where the word conspiracy comes from. What is the root of that word? So... If you type in the word conspiracy, you look for a definition. It is from the late Middle English, which is from Anglo-Norman French. And it comes from the word conspiracy, alteration of old French conspiration, based on Latin conspiare, agree, or to plot. Now, the very word in Latin, conspiriare, the literal meaning is actually the literal meaning is, and the root of the two words means to breathe together. Uh, so, if you break down the word, like you would have done in English class or in Latin class or whatever, you would see the word con, c o n, that is means with, and that's what it is in several different of the Romance languages, uh, and spiri means basically breathe so that's where we get the word respiration mm-hmm. and uh, respiratory and these type of things so those smoke-filled sweaty rooms that's right so basically that means that these people breathe together and they come up with their devious plots and their schemes so from latin we get the word conspiracy which basically means that two or more people hatch a plot. It's nothing wide, essentially, and as we're going to explore in the Greco-Roman world, uh, although there are some other elements, and I'll get to that in a second, but we're going to explore how these were mostly political conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, It wasn't necessarily to take over the world or some grand overarching plot. It was to take over some city-state or, later on, the Roman Republic or empire, such as. So, we'll start talking about ancient conspiracies. And these conspiracies often took the form of political ones to take control over or to change the political form of government. Uh, This type existed mostly in the age of late Republican Rome, but the Greek city-states were also very prone to political conspiracies. So, especially in Republican Rome, conspiracies are just rife and everywhere. And we're going to talk about one of the main ones, the conspiracy of Catiline, uh, that is very famous. But first, I want to get to one that actually comes from the Greek world. And that is 
the conspiracy of Cynodon that took place in 399 BC. And Cynodon was an officer from a poor family that tried to break the power of the oligarchy, which means ruled by the few, which was how Sparta was actually ruled as opposed to a quote-unquote democracy in Athens, even though you could make the case that Athens could, could have also been a uh, oligarchy as well. But his, his goal was to give more power to the poor and to the helots, which were these um, people that dwelt outside the city that were still considered part of, the, uh, of Sparta. Okay? And we'll read a little bit about this. Um, I don't want to spend like too much time on it. The oi polloi, right? Yeah. So there's some interesting things about this conspiracy, especially how it was uh, exposed. But this basically comes to us from an historian named Xenophon. And Aristotle apparently wrote about it too. But it's mostly in Xenophon. And Xenophon actually wrote a about the Rod of the Ten Thousand, uh, which is also very famous um, Greek history. But just a description of Cynodon, who he was, well-educated, and because of his job, he should have been a valued or respective person to be a member of the peers. He was a member of the interiors, Spartans who had lost their civil rights, either through cowardice or poverty. Okay, so this is someone that uh, is aspiring to a greater position. Right. Okay. Uh, he aspired to say to be to be a Lacedaemonian inferior to no one this this is the ancient word for for this for the spartans and where they were and how it was discovered there was a sacrifice that was given by the king agesilius the second and the soothsayer assisted the king and he saw a force all most terrible conspiracy and after that this man comes forward and denounces this conspiracy to the officials and they bring synodon to the agora which is the little meeting place and basically expose this conspiracy to overthrow the king so it's kind of interesting that you've got this soothsayer that says that there's a conspiracy afoot and then all of a sudden we don't know really what happened but was this man a part of the conspiracy and he Mm -hmm. somehow got cold feet and started feeling guilty about it was that what occurred uh that is interesting though that there is that small paranormal element yeah of the soothsayer being the one to recognize that mm-hmm. a conspiracy is afoot. Yeah, so we don't really know really what, you know, this could have just been the story. I don't know exactly. I think Xenophon might have been 100 or 200 years after the fact, whenever he lived. Um, so he was probably reporting whatever was given to him. So this is an example of kind of your typical greek conspiracy to overthrow a certain government in mm-hmm. this in this case we're talking about the spartans and i did a little more research about just how the greeks viewed conspiracy and i found a couple of interesting things um this is just from a short summary of a book called the rhetoric of conspiracy in ancient athens by joseph roisman i'll just read this here Joseph Roisman's Rhetoric of Conspiracy in Ancient Athens owes its genesis to his recently published book on the Athenian rhetoric of manhood. 
What better proof of the fear of conspiracy in Athens if one cannot study masculinity without encountering a multitude of references to plots, schemes, and conspiracies? R, meaning Roisman, mines the corpus of Attic orators for evidence of a widespread conspiratorial mindset and examines how such a worldview contributed to the maintenance of the Athenian democracy, concluding that it was thanks to the belief in plots and the plot detectors that faith in the validity of basic values and the existing system could be reaffirmed. In contrast to Eli Sagan, who attributes a degree of paranoia to the Athenians, Roisman posits that the rhetoric of conspiracy filled a need to explain why bad things happen to good people in the now classic formulation of Dieter Groh. He thus joins the current critical mode of conspiracy thinking that moves well beyond Hofstetter's so-called paranoid style, where we get the name for this, beginning with the social psychological contributions in Grauman and Muscovici, the popular culture study. I won't read too much of this. Uh, but it says a global audience of scholars is eager to understand how conspiracy theory generates social forms, and Roisman is the first to bring ancient Athens to the table. Okay, so basically, much like today, because humans haven't changed very much in the last uh, 2,500 years, the Athenians, especially them being a democracy and a more loosely controlled society than Sparta, saw conspiratorial things everywhere. So they had a very like he's saying a very conspiratorial mindset and the idea that you could, um, this explained why bad things happen to good people. Mm -hmm. So much like today. I mean, you know, people want to know why has this bad thing happened to me? And they want to bring some kind of order to their world. And that's basically why conspiracy theories seem to exist. You know, you were talking about Sparta before, but especially with, Athens that was, you know, s supposed to be a democracy and where we get a lot of those ideas from, it lends itself to the type of conspiracy theory that we know of today, where it's always about an internal plot. Uh, in these kind of societies, these democratic societies, you have these different parts of political power. You have the have-nots, you have the haves, the oligarchies, you have the political classes, you have uh, aspiring politicians and ascendant middle classes who use the power of the have-nots to try to get their own power in this like constant struggle um, between these different parts of societies. Um, whereas yeah. I think what we'll see in some of the medieval stuff is more of what people think of as like palace intrigues and things like that. But with these Greco and Roman conspiracies, I see a lot of parallels to today because these are you know, essentially the, the same kind of political systems with different powers competing within them. So they're like yeah. ripe for conspiracy. And to point out too that, you know, this Athens and Sparta uh, are basically are models for kind of competing political systems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have this Athens from where we get the idea of democracy. Sparta was much more authoritarian. Liberalism more, is attributed to Athens in its most general right, broad sense right. of the word. So and in Sparta being this ruled by this by by an oligarchy and um, not as much a free society, a warrior society. Um, so you you still see the kind of this dichotomy today. Athens how, versus Sparta, yeah. Right. Uh, so this is this is very much the basis for the Western world in in a lot of ways, and um, by extension of the Western world to the rest of the world, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
I thought this was interesting. Uh, this is uh, an article that I found. I'm not going to read too much of this. But this is from 2018. So did Illuminati conspiracy theories originate in ancient Greece? That's a great headline. But it says, you might think conspiracies that say everything that happens is caused by a group of the powerful is a modern phenomenon. Karl Popper says they are 2,000 years old. And this is, you have a picture of Karl Popper right here with the man on the moon because everybody knows that that's the biggest conspiracy is <laughs> man didn't go to the moon right they always put that on there so carl popper is a philosopher and i just want to read this one paragraph here it says in his short essay the conspiracy theory of society uh, popper begins by describing the worldview of the ancient greeks for them the gods took an active interest in human affairs and anything that happened had their tacit approval mm-hmm. Events like the Trojan War were the direct result of divine meddling in human affairs. Popper believes that this belief never faded away and that now, instead of using God, conspiracy theorists suppose events are orchestrated by various powerful men and groups, sinister pressure groups who may are to blame for having planned the Great Depression and all the evils from which we suffer. All right, so I guess that this was written uh, probably a long time ago. Yeah, I've, I've read that. Yeah. That's something that I'm going to need to sit down and read as well. Well, we explored that a little bit when we were talking about you have the conspiracy theory of of history, and then that you go further on that spectrum into the conspiracy theory of society, and then eventually uh, the conspiracy theory of reality itself. So he's saying that these ideas have largely been replaced by these uh, secretive evil groups that people imagine, but... I don't think that has been removed from some kind of spiritual dimension like we explored in the in the first episode of this. Yeah. So it still it builds out even further for people to think that then these these groups do have connections with some kind of otherworldly power, you know, depending on how how far sure. up the pyramid you go, man. Yeah. Yeah, that it makes it makes it makes total sense. That there is a spiritual dimension to this that we've talked about, that we've definitely have talked about before. Let's move on to the Roman era. And of course, the Roman world, there was so much conspiracy going on in Rome, it's not even funny. I mean, they, right. they were basically built on it. If you, if you review Roman history, so many emperors are assassinated. You know, you think about Caligula and Commodus come you know, right. immediately to mind. I mean, Caligula was killed by a conspiracy of his own Praetorian Guard, which were there supposed to, to uh, protect the emperor. You know, Commodus, it was more of a palace intrigue type of thing that, that killed him. And, you know, and, and power changed hands multiple times. Mm-hmm. So by the strictest sense of the word, these were uh, conspiracies. And if you go a little further back in time, if you go to the Roman Republic, right. it is riven with uh, conspiracies everywhere. Because as the Roman Republic makes the transition to the empire... This is around the 2nd century to the 1st century BC. Rome is in a vast amount of turmoil. I mean, I won't yeah. go into the whole history, obviously, here. And but, the chief concern is is losing the republic Republican form of government yeah. to a tyrant or tyranny, which right. eventually does happen. And that has you know a lot of parallels to um, our very current world, of course. But yeah. this, this whole idea of the... Um, 
that platonic cycle of um, having an oligarchy and the resistance to the oligarchy creating a pure democracy, which leads to a tyrant. Or right. It's from, from a republic to an oligarchy to democracy to a tyrant. Right. And a lot of Rome's issues and problems were due to the fact that you, we were talking about this earlier, that you had, there were two different factions in Rome and during the time of the Roman Republic. There was a senatorial faction. Mm-hmm. The Senate did not want to give up its power. And then you had a much more populist type of, of faction. And when people think of Julius Caesar, they think of like, you know, him as kind of like the, well, he was dictator. A lot of people think of him as the first emperor. Augustus was actually the first emperor, but that party was actually the populist party. So ironically enough, the populist party, you know, I say party, but it's really a faction. There's no yeah. real strict parties in, in, in the Roman history, but this is something, if you, you guys can go back, you can look at this, um, you know, this is something that starts with a, with two brothers, the Gracchi brothers, that try to bring some reforms to Rome that the Senate party does not like. And it's something that continues all the way to the time of Augustus, till the fact that because you have so much civil war that they feel more secure having one guy that's in control and able to keep everybody happy. I feel so like this we is need what some, eventually happens. I feel like we need some dates in here. Okay. Uh, so what about the a- ancient Greece around what, what time were, were these, the conspiracies going on then? Well, the, it said 399 BC for okay. the conspiracy of, of Synodon. I said that the Gracchi brothers are around 130 to about 120 BC. Okay. Um, you have uh, the first civil war. Go look this up. I'm not explaining all this because <laughs> no this will take forever, but the Sulla and Marius, which is around about to the eighties, yep to the late or early 70s when in bc you're counting down so remember that right uh because you know once jesus was born they all recognized that it was right that way. it was one ad and then so that's about then second civil war is pompey and caesar that's around 50s 40s and then finally you have the third civil war which is primarily augustus mark antony and that's I mean that's around 30 bc and 27 bc is when he becomes Augustus. So this around this mm-hmm. this around this time period, and then the the emperor's rule for about five hundred something years after this. And all these factions are essentially blaming each other for destroying the republic. Um, either it's right one or the other. They're saying that they are trying to take total control. So a good example of this, and something that is in the literature very much in the literature if you're especially if you're a latin student is the most famous conspiracy of at least the late republic but really probably the most conspiracy famous conspiracy in the roman world because it is written about by cicero who was the great orator of the roman late roman republic and students of latin study cicero and therefore they study these four orations against Catiline. Right. And um, these are speeches that Cicero, as we're going to see, gives in the Senate against this guy named Catiline, who is trying to take over the Roman Republic. And this is known in history as the Catilinarian Conspiracy. All right. 
So just to kind of give a sketch of this. So this is 63 BC that this happens there about. So this is before 60 BC is when the first triumph, the first triumvirate of Pompey, Caesar, Julius Caesar, and Crassus happens. So this is a little bit before that. Julius Caesar is actually on the scene uh, as this is going on, but he's not quite as known yet. Which, by the way, the other famous Latin text that people usually um, study is Caesar's Gallic Wars, okay, and Cicero's orations against Catiline. But we know about this because it's written so much by Cicero, and that's why it's so famous. Otherwise, it would probably be just another small conspiracy that took place to overthrow the Roman Republic that nobody paid any attention to, but because it has been preserved so well by in by Latin teachers. That's why we know about it. All right, so basically, as it's come down to us, it's the most famous in the Roman world. So Catiline was of this populist party, a really faction, that wanted to take control of the Republic, and he wanted to use the poor of the city as his base. And he actually assembles this kind of coalition of these de- disaffected patricians and plebeians. I'll explain briefly what that is. A patrician was the upper class. Mostly that was the senatorial class, which is which is really trying to really hold on to power at this point. The plebeians were uh, the kind of lower, cl- not kind of the middle class of Rome, really. Uh, the lower class was just kind of like the rabble. But the but the the whole plebeian and patrician thing goes way back in the early Roman Republic. So you can think of them as like the middle class, like the tradesmen, merchants, yeah. these type of guys. Okay, um, but these guys, a lot of them had been cast out of that political system, and they really wanted to restore their positions for whatever reason that this happened. And some of these people were disaffected veterans of Sulla's army who had taken control of Rome that felt like they had gotten a raw deal from Sulla's senatorial party, a member of which is Cicero, just as an example. So he pulls in these veterans, and uh, these guys had also experienced like an economic loss. There's kind of like an economic downturn, so they were all disaffected. Sounds and, really familiar. Yeah, he, he assembles this army in Eturia, which is now where Florence is, Tuscany. And he makes this plan to march on Rome. And while this army is waiting outside the gates of the city, uh, Catiline gets all his boys together, and they go around, and they kill all these senators and these public officials, and then they're going to go join the army. And they go... They do kill some of these guys, and they leave, and they go back and join the and, and join the army. And it's, it's, this is an idea to try to kind of cut the head off yeah. the Roman government, and this is what he's trying to do. Uh, and now Cicero, they, he was on the list, which Cicero later does end up getting his head chopped off later on, about twenty years later. Uh, but Cicero, he's supposed to be killed, but he's actually warned by the mistress of a friend. I guess this is like an informer. They've got in their own informers, a little yeah. network, and people that are probably getting paid to find out what's going on. And he manages to have his guards ward these guys off that are coming to kill Cicero. Okay, so Cicero knows what's going on. He goes, he convenes the Senate, and he gives 
the first of these four Catalan orations. Like I said, these are the very famous orations that are studied even to this day. Okay. And Catalan's actually in attendance while this is going on. And later on, just to kind of give you an idea of what happens to Catalan, the conspiracy is exposed by Cicero. I guess it takes three more orations to get this done. But some of these guys end up turning against him. So just to give you an idea of what happens. So when Catalina was preparing the army, conspirators continued with their plans. The conspirators observed that delegation from the Allobroges, this is a German tribe, was in Rome seeking relief from the oppression of their governor. So Lentulus Sura instructed Publius Umbrinus, a businessman with dealings in Gaul, to offer to free them of their miseries and throw off the heavy yoke of their governor. He brought Publius Galbinius Capito, a leading conspirator of the equestrian rank, to meet them, and the conspiracy was revealed to Albroges. The envoys quickly took advantage of this opportunity and informed Cicero, who then instructed the envoys to obtain tangible proof of the conspiracy. So they're still kind of trying to get this thing revealed. And five of the leading conspirators wrote letters to Alabrogi so that the envoys could show their people that there was truly a conspiracy which had the potential to succeed. However, a trap had been laid. These letters were intercepted in transit to Gaul at the Milvian Bridge. Milvian Bridge might ring a bell because that's later where Constantine, that's the battle he fights in the day before he sees the Mm -hmm. cross that says, by the sign you will conquer. Then Cicero had the incriminating letters read before the Senate, and the following day and shortly thereafter, these five conspirators were condemned to death without a trial, despite an elegant protest by Julius Caesar. All right, so Catiline, he goes, and he eventually has to fight, and he is killed in the, middle, in the midst of the battle, and this conspiracy is dipped in the bud. Now, I thought this was interesting that I wanted to... I need to find this. There's a lot of shit that gets written about Catalan. And he's kind of this reviled guy. Because remember, we're getting this history, as we always do, from the victors, right? right. We're getting this from Cicero. Cicero don't like this guy, okay? And he's going to make him seem like he is like Satan on Earth. And... Uh, he decides so everything that we know is filtered through this but there are others that later write about Catiline and a lot of historians now think well he that he didn't he kind of got a raw deal here that he was just one of these factions in Rome that he actually cared about his country he actually cared about his countrymen Uh, from the uh, Roman historian Florus later, he says, Catiline was found far in advance of his men among the dead bodies of the enemy, a most glorious death had he thus fallen for his country. So there is some sympathy for him in some of these like lesser known historians. Right. But there's also a lot that gets written about Catiline that we don't know is necessarily true. So I'll read this from the Wikipedia page here. After Catiline's death, many of the poor still regarded him with respect and did not view him as the traitor and villain that Cicero claimed he was. The aristocratic element of Rome, however, certainly viewed him in a much darker light. Silist, as another historian, wrote an account of the conspiracy that epitomized Catiline as representative of all the evils festering in the declining Roman Republic. In his account, Sallust attributes countless crimes and atrocities to Catiline, 
except for some of the more, more outrageous claims against him, particularly a ritual that involved drinking blood of a sacrificed child. Hmm. Just let yeah. that soak in for just a second. That's what the conspirators do. Yeah. So I find that that's incredibly interesting that this guy that is so reviled has something that we was probably not true yeah. written about him. That is and as we're going to see told today. Yeah. And as we're going to see here, when we get to the, we get to the blood libel stuff that this is going to, these type of things are later going to be written about whole groups of people. Yeah. Uh, but Catiline just gets this thrown on him by this later historian and it's interesting how old these tropes are. <laughs> yeah. And this is over 2,000 years ago. Um, In the collective consciousness. Yeah. I mean. Right. So here's just a passage here. It said, Nevertheless, many Romans viewed his character with a degree of respect. Well, after Catiline's death and the end of the threat of the conspiracy, Cicero stated that Catiline was an enigmatic man who possessed both the greatest of virtues and the most terrible of vices. This is actually from Cicero. He said, but he had many things about him which served to allure men to the gratification of their passions. He had also many things which acted as incentives to industry and toil. The vices of, of just of lust raged in him, but at the same time, he was conspicuous for great energy and military skill. Nor do I believe that there ever existed so strange a prodigy upon the earth made up such a matter of the most various and different and inconsistent studies and desires. So there's a little bit of praise in there, but it's also a little bit of uh, dog in the guy, too. And then there's some comparisons that are made by some later historians, more modern historians, that compare Catiline to the Gracchi brothers, uh, which were kind of the more famous, which were kind of famous of that more populous party in Rome. So, uh, and there's several cultural depictions of him too. Um, you know, Virgil writes about him in the Aeneid, uh, Ben Johnson, English playwright from the, from the 17th century writes about him. Salieri, the famous, uh, Salieri from, uh, from Mozart, um, supposed rival wrote an opera about him. So, you know, this, this is a, a very well known conspiracy that, that is often cited as a good example of such. And Catiline, it seems like, becomes this archetypal, aspiring, tyrant, populist tyrant. Right. Basically. And uh, Sullust, the, uh, who was a politician and also an historian, uh, also wrote about him as well um, in work Conspiracy of Catiline, which is kind of a companion piece to uh, Cicero, Cicero's orations. So that is the conspiracy of Catiline. The parallels are just so amazing. I mean, down to what was going on in the in the Senate. I mean, and what's going on right now. I mean, this stuff as, we, is, as we're yeah as we're recording this yeah. It's really amazing, and and you really can't um, overestimate the influence of this these classical periods. Well, that's something that was done. Um, you know, the idea of turning the mob loose on people. This yeah. is something that was done in Rome. Yeah. Um, when when Caesar is in Gaul and he's conquering Gaul in the 50s BC, he leaves his cronies in Rome. Mm-hmm. And they're causing all kinds of mischief. Um, 
political mischief. And the other thing about Rome, and, I, and, I, and I'll say this is kind of a digression. If we're talking about the January 6th hearings, the death of the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius is the first. You had Tiberius and Gaius. They're separated by about 10 years in their tribuneship. That is considered by a lot of modern historians as being this shift where Rome began to descend into political violence. Yeah. And you could really see that type of same thing in the January 6th stuff with the insurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, was that, was that a point of no return? The use of political violence. So if you look at the history of late Republican Rome, you're basically looking at these precedents that gets, that gets set. You know, one party captures Rome, kills a whole bunch of people, and then all of a sudden the army that's not supposed to march on Rome then marches on Rome. So that's another political precedent. You have the first civil war between Marius and Sulla. Sulla turns the army in, takes the army to Rome, which he's not supposed to do. Okay. And he's the more the senatorial party. Well, later on, the rival faction under Julius Caesar, about 30 years later, marches on Rome. So one thing just leads to another. One precedent is set by somebody else. And that's that's kind of how I feel. Is like, did we kind of reach, not to get too political, kind of hard to avoid it if you talk about Rome. Did we reach kind of a kind of a watershed moment with January 6th where now the other side could do some potential something potentially? You know, I don't know. You know, well, maybe, even these- maybe these hearings can help solve this, but you know, it, it's it it does kind of seem like a point of no return. If you study history, uh, you see these trends, right? And even the makeup of and the the class elements, you know, are pretty much the same. You're talking about disaffected or ascendant, aspirational middle classes, and that that's really the majority of what we're seeing with the militant right wing uh, in America. You know, it's not yeah. really the the rabble and of course in you know some in the greco a lot of the greco-roman world the rabble isn't really even represented period um, but they are used from time to time but when we're talking about the the plebeians you know these are like people with a small amount of property but who really have something to gain and people who might have been disaffected and, and lost a yeah. lot and, and felt like they you know deserved more well a lot of it, if you look, because the Roman, the, the Roman Republic is, especially the end of it, is very interesting. It was so interesting that our own founding fathers oh, yeah. studied it, and they wanted to understand why did what went wrong? Rome become an autocratic society with the emperors. Which, even with the emperors, you know, we use that word. I mean, you know, it comes from imperator, which is a title given to some of these generals, and later Augustus... Um, has that same title and he passes it on to his successors but even with the emperors you know augustus when he takes power he restores the republic essentially is what he says he does but he doesn't really do that um so there's this republican fiction but if you look at the republic the main problem and this is really what the gracchi brothers were trying to address was the fact that the senate the patricians in the senate did not want to give up their position they did not want to give up their perks. They didn't want to give up uh, their way of life. 
They didn't want to share it with anybody else. And I feel like you see the same thing today where the elite, the rich, don't want to give up their good life. And the middle class is shrinking. And the middle class is shrinking. And you kind of see some parallels to that. Yeah, a lot. You know, and because the thing with the Gracchi brothers was land reform. Mm-hmm. And what are we experiencing right now with all this, you know, this absurd rent and all this stuff? Yeah. I mean, basically, these farmers were being pushed off the land by these rich guys that could buy the land because they could import all these slaves from all these places that the Romans had conquered by 133 B.C. And they brought these slaves to work the land more efficiently, and they could have these big-ass farms while they push the little guy off. And the little guy, well, what does he do? He ends up going to Rome and just becomes one of these, you know, basically feeders off the the Roman uh, economy or the, you know. And this was a real problem. Yeah. And first Tiberius and then his brother Gaius who were both killed because the senator party won't allow this to happen, trying to solve this issue. They're trying to introduce some kind of land reform, and they are dealt with, essentially. And because of that, the senators feel like, oh, well, we got rid of the Gracchi brothers. We can we can go on and just everything's you know business as usual, but it wasn't. They had set this precedent of political violence that the roman republic descended into Mm -hmm. and because the original republic was largely based on not an entirely egalitarian society but a society of small propertied farmers right i mean originally it was just pretty much the city of rome and whatever surrounding area and then they conquered italy and then they conquered you know they conquered whatever they got from from carthage and then they conquered greece and then when they conquered greece that's when they started seeing that there's money to be gotten in all these old Hellenistic monarchies. And then the same year that Tiberius Gracchus comes to power, or not really to power, he's a tribune. But that same year, a king of this, king of Pergamon, I think, wills his whole kingdom to Rome. He's got no successor. He just gives it all to Rome. And they've got suddenly, all of a sudden, they've got the riches of the East at their hand, and yeah. guys start making money, and then this, this starts to it's it's you know, and it makes everybody rich, and they buy all this land, and it's just it's just a, it's a snow it's a snowball people, yeah. effect, right? So they're becoming an empire, whereas before in ancient Rome, yes, you had these yeoman farmers that worked the land, you had you know. This, you know, some of this stuff is legend, probably legendary, right, like right. Cincinnatus, the guy that's the farmer, and they say, oh, we need your help against this tribe, and he becomes dictator for a year, and he solves that problem, and he goes back to his farm, and, you know, <laughs> George, George Washington, yeah, yeah. George Washington is, you know, kind of that, they say he's the American Cincinnatus, this is where we get the name Cincinnati for the city, and the order of the Cincinnatus. So, yeah, there was not as much social pressures, but as they grew, and you can kind of make the same parallels with the United States, right? We started out that way. Yeoman farmers, we grew, took the continent, got all the way out to California. Then we decided we need to be in all these markets, got Alaska, got Hawaii, you know, World War One, World War Two, and then all of a sudden we're this gigantic empire. And we still, and now these same kind of pressures kind of apply to us somewhat. It's just, it's it's kind of the course of empire, really. Um, 
these are the type of things that that happen so that about covers it for conspiracy in the classical greco-roman world that's right you did an excellent job adam i know this is your passion that's my uh discourse on the fall of the roman republic we could do a whole other we could do like a whole episode on that and just let me talk about it <laughs> a for, whole podcast for on that probably you know who who killed who and who got beheaded and all that good stuff by the way cicero uh just a, you know the demise of cicero just just as an aside he he sided with uh octavian who after the death of uh julius caesar was uh, uh caesar's great nephew octavian later becomes augustus and he sides with octavian against mark antony and because uh, cicero did not like mark antony and mark antony did not like him well later on just like a year later uh octavian and mark antony formed the second triumvirate and uh they end up proscribing cicero and cicero ends up getting killed and they chop his head off and they uh they put his hands in his mouth Ooh. and this was like a message of well he liked to talk and wave his hands around as an orator so that's what that's what they did so that was that was the demise of the great orator cicero well damn rome was some great stuff I don't know if you've ever seen this, the HBO series Rome, but uh, that's that's one to see. Or like I Claudius is another one. If you really want like palace intrigue, that's a good one to watch. From like the seventies, the mini the the miniseries. I think we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna transition. I think try to transition a little bit to the uh, medieval world. Yeah, and we're going to hit the blood libel stuff because really uh, the blood libel stuff you could do a whole show on. I think that's what we're going to try to to do next time. But um, so I think we're going to talk about kind of the transition to Christianity. Yes, we are going to transition to the Christian world from this classical Roman um, world and um, point out some things that are going to stay the same relatively, some things that are going to change. I think, you know, some of the largest changes is that as opposed to the this syncretic pagan world, um, in this new Christian world, um, instead of purely political conspiracies, uh, there's often going to be an extremely uh, religious component. Let's talk a little bit about. Let's kind of let's just like set this up, and you know the the beginning of Christianity, how this uh, gets separated out from Judaism, and we'll kind of set up for next time, uh, especially with the blood libel stuff, how this kind of like animosity mm-hmm. between Judaism and christianity gets started and why you're gonna have a situation where you have this minority that lives in a predominantly christian world that is later going to be persecuted and accused of all of these things and like we said we were talking about Catiline and like him sacrificing a child that you'll see a lot of these type of things pop up again and again and again especially now with first pizzagate and now QAnon. Uh, and the satanic panic and all these things, uh, this comes back. But really, this starts with uh, the kind of the animosity between Christians and the Jews. So, obviously, you have Jesus comes along. Uh, depending on what you believe, you know, Jesus dies, rises again, whatever you believe about that. But something happens. That allows Christianity to become its own 
um, thing. And Christianity is kind of the subset of Judaism for a few years. And it's really till you get to St. Paul. St. Paul still was a Jew, but he wanted to bring Christianity to basically what is the Greek world. So Mm -hmm. Asia Minor, Greece proper. And of course you have, if you look on the in the back of your Bible, you'll see St. Paul's missionary journeys. And his journeys are described in the book of Acts. You have the letters that are in um, the Bible that are from St. Paul. Some of them are attributed to St. Paul. Some of them are uh, actually him. We'll go into why that is. But it's just later traditions and such like that. So you have this idea that, you know, the big thing was circumcision. So he's trying to make it more palatable to the pagan world. And a lot of guys don't want to have the tip of their dick cut off. That's kind of essentially what it comes down to in the beginning. Ouch. But this is a huge uh, kind of schism within the kind of like Greek Christian community and the Christian community that is in the Holy Land in Jerusalem. All right. So you fast forward. St. Paul is gone. St. Peter, they're all gone. Uh, any of these guys that actually knew Jesus are essentially gone, except for maybe John. And in the year AD 70, uh, well, actually in AD 66, there is a revolt against the Roman Empire in uh, in what is in Judea. And this war is fought for about four years until, and it's often cited as the Roman Emperor Titus, even though his father, Vespasian, is the emperor when this happens, but he later becomes emperor. But he's a general, the son of the emperor, and he basically raises Jerusalem to the ground. And this is kind of the beginning of the separation and the divergence point between the Christians and what later is to become like rabbinic Judaism. And in the decades after this, you get the Gospels written. And a lot of people look at the Gospels, a lot of scholars look at the Gospels and say that a lot of it is kind of like they're trying to separate themselves from what happened in 70 AD. Separate themselves from the Jews and say, we are our own distinct identity. We're we're not Jewish. We're Christian. uh, Because a lot of them were more now Greek or Roman. Mm -hmm. And they weren't Jewish in origin as they had been before. You fast forward a little bit more to the year 135 there is another revolt in in judea called the bar Kokhba revolt and that is this messianic figure that the the jews there rally behind and proclaim this guy bar Kokhba, king of the jews and this also ends in a miserable failure and it's after the bar Kokhba revolt that the romans really kind of clamp down uh, and they clamp down on the Jews all over the empire because they see them as like these guys have caused a lot of nuisances. So we're you know there, there's no more um, tolerance for them. And while this is going on, the Christians are also kind of being persecuted as well, just because they won't pay or they won't pay this homage to the cult of the emperor. So these two things are kind of happening all at once. And with this second revolt, there's even more of a divergence. Mm-hmm. And so really by this time, scholars look at the Bar Kokhba revolt as also this kind of pivotal pivotal time to where these become two distinct communities, 
two distinct religions and Christianity goes its own way and Judaism goes its own way. And because the temple no longer exists, it had been destroyed in AD 70. You have what later becomes and what is now still exists, rabbinic Judaism. In other words, they have the synagogue, they have a rabbi that interprets the scripture, all these type of things. So uh, you've got these two things that develop out of kind of like the second temple Judaism, which is Christianity and and uh, rabbinic Judaism. So something very fortuitous happens, and I mentioned this in the first part, in around eighty three thirteen, I think it is, you have the Roman Emperor Constantine, who is fighting it out with these other rival emperors for control of the empire, and his mother was a Christian, uh, his father was not. But as the story goes, he looks mm-hmm. up in the sky and he has this vision and he sees this cross in the sky and it says basically from Latin, I think it's in hoc signo vinces or something like that, in the sign you will conquer. So he has uh, his soldiers paint this onto their shield, onto their shields, and they win this battle, the Milvian Bridge against this rival emperor. And he's able to take over the West, Western part of the emperor empire. Later, he takes over the whole thing and establishes Constantinople. That's where you get the beginning of the Byzantine Emperor Empire and all that. But this is what leads to the Council of Nicaea. I think it's in 325. Don't quote me on that. You can probably look it up. This is what leads to kind of this idea. And Constantine is not a Christian necessarily. Uh, he worships the sun god Sol Invictus, who is like a Syrian deity, and this is why the Christians kind of have to like move their day of worship from Saturday, which is also where the Jews worship. They move it to Sunday because that's the day of Sol Invictus. Uh, Christmas was now Christmas is also the feast day of Sol Invictus. So all these dates and things get moved to fit with kind of what is the emperor's religion. Constantine doesn't actually get baptized until he's on his deathbed. And then he's baptized by this heretical bishop. So he is not actually really the first Christian emperor, but Constantine's idea is you've got all these fractions, uh, heresies that are going on in the Roman world between the Christians, and they don't all agree with each other. So what he's trying to do when he's trying to bring the Roman world together under his rule, he's also trying to make the Christians see themselves all as one to come come up with some kind of orthodoxy that fits everything because. Constantine's like, you know, I rule, you know, I want everybody to a new you know. state religion. Right, exactly. And he's not thinking of it necessarily at the time at that time as a possible he's thinking of it maybe as a possible state religion. His sons have converted to Christianity. So once his sons take control of the empire, they are a couple of them are diff are different uh one of them espouses a heresy called Arianism. Mm-hmm. This is something that comes up in the Council of Nicaea and a couple of the different church councils. And this is like splitting hairs kind of thing. It's like, this is all good in like Christology, okay? Mm-hmm. Where like, what is the nature of Jesus? Is he fully human? Is he fully divine? Is the Father one with the Son? Is the Son one with the Holy Ghost? What does this all mean? And they're trying to figure all this stuff out. And it gets... It gets pretty heated. Like at some point, they're drawing swords and killing each other over this stuff. These bishops, you know, and there, there's this heresy that develops called Arianism, where 
Arius is a bishop that says that, well, okay, so Jesus comes from the Father. He comes from God. So he's like this created being. He's equal with God, but he's like generated from God. Whereas orthodoxy says Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one. The Trinity. The Trinity, this idea. He still believes in the Trinity, but it's just the way the relationship of of Christ to the Father how all this what all this means okay which all seems very just uh yeah. philosophical to most people right. now but back then this was very yeah. very it is kind of important at the time because it is an arian you call these got the ones distinguish that between arian these are arian a-r-i-a-n a arian bishop travels beyond the empire to the north and converts germanic tribes and when the Germanic tribes overrun the Western Empire in the in the fifth century A.D., they uh, are mostly Aryan. Okay, and this is kind of a problem because you have what is then a Catholic or an Orthodox uh, population run by this run by overlords that are this heresy. Right. Eventually, uh, this pro- this problem gets solved, but. The Merovingians come into this story. Uh-oh. We'll, we'll talk about the Merovingians. First because, Merovingian appearance of right. paranoid styles. So, so, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about the Merovingians at some point. But uh, because Clovis, uh, not the first Merovingian king, but he is the king of the Franks, and he is converted to Catholicism. And this begins the process of converting the rest of the Germanic tribes. Eventually, Visigoths convert, and the Ostrogoths get destroyed, and... You have the Lombards, and they are still Aryan, which is, that's all taken care of in the time of Charlemagne. So, but even before this Orthodox uh, and Aryan thing, even before Orthodoxy really coalesces, you also have Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, I would say... Which we touched on a lot on the first one of these. It's going to enter, it really is going to enter in the picture, especially in the Middle Ages, which we'll talk about in a future episode, maybe next time or the time after, about the Cathars and Mm -hmm. how they were influenced by Gnosticism. But Gnosticism basically is the idea of, of duality, pure spirit, pure material world and there was differences that they had with each other but so these are kind of like the various heresies and these ideas that are kind of percolating around like the late roman early medieval medieval era we will see conspiracy theories having to do with these ideas either ones that are looking for the truth in some of these heresies and have the view that uh official um canonized christianity had organized conspiratorial efforts to suppress hidden truth that was in some of these heresies uh from humanity uh in order to better rule them or from the other side people who think that some of these heresies were maintained by certain secretive groups or elites. Yeah. Especially the Gnostic stuff. And Mm -hmm. then you've got this, um, in the Jewish tradition, you have kind of a Jewish Gnosticism, which is Kabbalism. And that is something that's going to kind of develops really in the late ancient world, but is really going to take off because Spain is conquered by the Muslims and Jews are tolerated there much more so than they are in uh, the rest of the Western world. And there's Kabbalistic schools that 
that start there and that's going to have a huge influence on a lot of these secret societies later on down the line so i think that's pretty good setup for the medieval world yeah Um, Yeah. on the next episode you can look forward to uh, elaboration on all of that and more I think we're going to talk about blood libel next time. We might get into a few other things. Uh, Talk about how the Jews were persecuted in medieval Europe and what this meant and how this influences the blood libel idea. And get into maybe also get into a little bit of like kind of like the ancient antecedents as well. So uh, if there's nothing else, I guess we'll call it. But um, that was a great show. I hope that uh, you guys enjoy this. Um, getting to hear a little bit from us and me lecturing you for an hour and so. Professor Sane. That's right, yeah. Uh, but um, just a couple of announcements. We are gearing up for the conference coming up in October, October 14th through the 16th of 2022. Uh, we've got a great lineup for you guys, and um, we hope that you guys can make it. Come to Nashville. We know that, uh, yeah, gas is getting expensive and it's getting a little hairy out there, but uh, we'd love for you guys to come and hang out with us. By plane, train, or automobile. That's right. Uh, you know, some, some come in buses. So um, that's going to be coming up soon and uh we've got some great shows lined up uh coming up in july uh with some great people and uh joshua kutchin will be doing our next um uh, strange online realities. streaming events for strange realities that's coming up on july 22nd so you guys we want to see you for see you come out for that as well and uh our patreon is available we're trying to get up as much as we can up there uh it is sometimes difficult but uh surfiel could continue you where to find that you can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal and uh you can join many of our completely innocent brotherly fraternal organizations of those different that's right patreon tiers don't listen to anyone who says otherwise yeah although they have uh, I've, I've heard that these guys have been actually absent uh their interruptions have been absent from the last couple shows now so maybe their antenna broke down or yeah something. we hope not to hear back from them but uh yeah, yeah. don't believe the hype <laughs> patreon.com slash conspiranormal all right guys we'll talk to you later and uh join us next month as well for another paranoid styles paranoid styles When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.